Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website, blog, and radio. My passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's and memory loss, and that came to me through my mother's 30-year journey with memory loss. For those of you that are new to our show, I just want to give you a brief introduction to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Our goal is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and empower them to live purpose-filled lives. We also want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's, be you the person who's memory impaired or the caregiver. Our channel expert, Rick Phelps, who founded um, Memory People on Facebook, I'm not sure if he's going to make it with us here today or not, but if Rick joins us, I will let you know. And I also want to remind you that on our homepage, you can find our links to contact us if you have any questions. And I hope you enjoy the show just as much as I do today. Um, If you have any questions or comments, please feel free, if you're listening via your Internet, um, to use the chat box. Otherwise, you can always call into the number, which is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. And I will be um, looking for any questions or comments that you might have to roll in with. Today we are, I'm just thrilled to death, I'm honored and privileged to have Dr. Gordon Atherley with us. Um, And I met uh, Dr. Um, Gordon Atherley actually via the Internet once again through a connection, and he actually interviewed me on his Family Caregivers Unite um, radio program, which is featured on Voice of America Network Variety Channel. And if you haven't had an opportunity to check out his um, his radio show, I would highly recommend it because he has great information on there. He has also um, produced uh, Family Care Guidelines, which are a, a model on clinical practice guidelines used by physicians for family caregivers. Uh, Dr. Gordon is an advocacy editor for the Family Caregiver News Magazine. He holds the British equivalent to the North American PhD and MD and um, LLD degrees, honors causa um, from Canada's Simon Fraser University. He was also the first president and chief executive officer of um, the Canadian Center for Occupational Health and Safety, which is the equivalent to the U.S. National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. Um, Knowledge services from the Canada Center are now used in some 40 countries, including China. So he's quite accomplished. He also tenured full-time positions, including the department chair in the university's um, faculties of um, physics, engineering, and medicine. And he is also trained um, as an Air Force pilot and served in the um, unit medical officer of the H-Bomber station during the Cold War. So it's my great privilege to welcome you, um, Dr. Athlete, to the show today. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine, Laurie, and I want to say thank you very much for the intro. And I also want to say to our listeners just how successful 
I think your episode on my show was, and the way in which you address the issues of Alzheimer's um, disease and questions for family caregivers and that kind of thing. So thank you very much for having me on your show, and I hope I do as well on yours as you did on mine. Well, I don't have a doubt at all about that. I think we're going to fill this air and fly through this show <laughs> without batting an eye. So to begin with, why don't you just give us a little background about yourself and, you know, how did you how did you get into being this caregiver advocate on steroids, I'll call it, um, and, and what touched you um, to go down this road? Thanks for that. Uh, I'm going to be talking right now about my personal experience rather than my professional experience and um, it's a story that goes back to my first marriage uh, because my first wife was a woman who was a straight A student all throughout her life. Um, she was an oboist, she was a writer, she was a poet, she was an ornithologist, she was a competition standard rifle shooter, and on the way through all of that, she earned a medical degree, which she received at the same time as I got mine. And by then, we were married with a son. She made what I think was a fine start as a physician. Then, after about three years, she and I began to notice something that we would call a dark cloud that increasingly hung over her and everything that she and I did and thought about. And finally, she was the one that arrived at the diagnosis, and the diagnosis was paranoid schizophrenia. Now, in and out of mental hospital, I have to say, medical care, it helped her, but only slightly. Then one evening... She told me that she was going out for a walk, leaving me as the babysitter. And that was the last time I saw her, because on her walk, she took her own life by overdosing on her medication. Um, at the time, then, when I was a young physician, and so was she, the medical statistics showed that suicide is especially common in intellectually gifted young adults who then go on to develop paranoid schizophrenia. And despite all the years of medical research and medical effort, that's still true. Um, and so these, this, this condition and its effects are an ongoing challenge, is too weak a word, an ongoing cloud over the lives of the people with the condition and also their family caregivers. Now, as the single father of by then three boys, I learned the role of family caregiving thanks to her sister and her mother. And it's to them that I dedicate these efforts. So what really left itself in my mind was that some, there's something about family caregiving which my profession and I think other professions as well don't actually understand. Now as I work my way through my career um, I have to say these things were always in the back of my mind but never in the front of my mind. Then when it came time for my father to die and I was then by then away from Britain again I had to rely 
on family caregivers, but this time it was one of my sons. And I thought to myself, it's time I did something. And my doing something, I hope, is what uh, will help others and is what drives me in running my talk show, writing the things that I write and doing the advocacy that I do. And I'm an advocate uh, in the same way that you are, Laurie. So thank you for asking me this question because it gives me an opportunity to, uh, I think, uh, open my heart a little um, to our listeners and also to confront myself with the fact that time has come for me to do something useful. Well, I think it's wonderful you took such a painful experience and are really doing something positive with it. And to me, that's just such a strong message for everybody to hear because there is so much each of us can do in our own way. And it may not be having a radio show or being on TV or speaking in front of people. It might just be talking to a friend who needs needs your time, you know, or assisting. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you today. And um, one of the things that you really had mentioned that you wanted to talk about was exploring the whole aspect of autonomy for family caregivers. So I'm going to let you explain explain um, a little bit of, you know, just define autonomy, autonomy for our viewers in case some of them don't don't know. Um, what does that mean to you and how does it play a role in caregiving? Thanks. Autonomy is one of those words um, with a profound meaning. And the profound meaning is the right to make decisions for yourself. It covers all kinds of circumstances and most of our lives, most of the time, <clears throat> we take it for granted that we can make our own decisions. Now where it becomes important in, the, in conditions like Alzheimer's disease and for that matter schizophrenia and other mental health conditions is this, that there are times in those conditions where the individual, as my wife was and as many, many other people who suffer from schizophrenia will, will are and will be unable to make decisions that are in their own best interests. That is to say, um, things happen or they do things and those things maybe get them into trouble, maybe lead them to do things which uh, are potentially harmful to them, um, maybe cause problems for their family caregivers. They're not doing it because they're ornery or mean. They're doing it because something has gone wrong with their, you know, the things that go on in your mind and your brain uh, that enable you to make decisions. So under those circumstances, Laurie, somebody has to take over for you and while you like that, and you in this instance is the person that's suffering this mental health condition, and basically say, right now I'm going to make the decision for you um, because as we both know, the decision you're making may not be the best for you. Now, what that comes to, uh, this, I know many of your listeners will be familiar with this, um, power of attorney where where there's a legal right for you as a family caregiver, us as a family caregiver, to actually 
make the decisions on things like family matters and you know what the healthcare system can and cannot do to you and all those kinds of things and that's formalized in this category called power of attorney. There's also something called substitute decision maker. Now it's probable that the terminology varies a bit from one place to another but basically what it says is there are times when the family caregiver has to stand in and make the decisions for the individual. So autonomy means uh, that when the individual with the with the health condition is okay for making decisions, can live by themselves, can make their own decisions, they have autonomy. But when the condition has intervened and spoiled that decision making, then the autonomy passes to the family caregiver. That's how I would describe it, but Laurie, if I haven't been clear about it, please question me about it because this is, this is a very important thing for family caregivers I think. Yeah, when I, when I think of autonomy, I think of, you know, um being independent and being self-sufficient and being able to find that balance when you're caring for somebody in this particular case because what's good for me might not be good for the other person and I think it's kind of that balance of independence and you know morally what is what is right because that weighs on our mind as well as um you know just how do you maneuver it how do you get beyond the the judgment of society i think is a is a tough tough piece um to be centered with yourself and and feel good about what it is you're doing um in terms of care so that would be i guess what i would what i would add i guess in when i think about autonomy. And I, if our listeners have any comments on that, I would love to hear from you as well. Um, Gordon, I would love to hear your, your opinions um, regarding just the word autonomy and what it means to you, because I think that's one of the biggest problems when we give care is that we all need to somehow use the same language in order to move forward here. We have to come from kind of the basic um, a basic center together and and move forward. But but given your definition, why don't you go ahead and talk about um you know, dig into it a little bit deeper on on why you think it is so important and maybe give some specifics or stories that you can share to point that out if you wouldn't mind. Sure. I'm going to say that autonomy is one of the responsibilities for family caregivers. That is it's as you just said, it's something that weighs on the family caregiver. Um, that responsibility, which is a moral responsibility in some ways, as well as a practical one, to make a decision that's in the best interests of the family member, the person with the mental health condition. Not mine, the family caregiver's best interest, but the family member's best interest, which is exactly what you said. So that's a tough responsibility. It's an onerous responsibility, and um, it's a, it can be a worrying responsibility. Now, some, some examples. Um, I'm going to give one from schizophrenia and one from a more general one from Alzheimer's, just to illustrate the point. First of all, with schizophrenia, um, the condition of schizophrenia includes 
phases where the person loses really a grip on reality. They may hear voices, uh, they may which nobody else can hear. They may see things which nobody else can see. And sometimes the voices are critical. Sometimes the voices are giving them instructions to do things. Uh, and sometimes the voices are almost are threatening. And the person then responds to those voices in ways that are harmful. Uh, and I'm going to give you a, a very harsh and unpleasant example. But the suicide I referred to um, can be, could be, a, a person with the condition obeying those inner voices, where the inner voices are the disorder of the brain. Um, the way in which uh, those voices can also influence harmfully is sometimes they say to somebody, you're being spied on, you're being attacked, you're being undermined, your water's being poisoned or your food's being poisoned. And that leads the person to become aggressive in ways that they would never do uh, except when they're in the grip of this awful temporary stage. And that's why the, the family caregiver um, needs to have this autonomy, this responsibility for family caregiving. And it can be urgent um, because if somebody with this kind of condition makes a threat or makes any sound, voice, uh, or, or displays any action that implies that they're thinking about skip, uh, sorry about um, suicide, there's sadly a very strong chance that they'll carry through on that. So that's why this responsibility weighs very, very heavily. And quite, quite honestly, family caregivers need all the help they can get uh, in those kinds of situations. Now, to talk about Alzheimer's, um, there are as we all know, stages of this, and there's memory loss, and then there's a kind of memory loss that starts getting in the way of things, where people will not just forget where they left their keys, or, you know, whether they left the light on or off, but will actually start to do things which are harmful to them and maybe harmful to their families. And, for example, forgetting what your um, bank account password is, um, losing that and opening up another bank account, which is a reported case, is an instance of something which in itself isn't physically harmful, but can be very harmful um, to the family. Now, another example along the same lines is, here was um, a family, immigrants to North America, worked as, they, as as we do, hard to build up the family, to build a home, um, to create lives, and the children all were very successful, and at least one of them was in the financial industry. Now, the mother, because the father had now died, was living by herself in what had been the family home. And along comes somebody Supposedly, supposedly from one of the banks saying 
don't worry about paying the bills. Don't worry about looking after anything to do with your bank account. We'll do all of that for you. And sure enough, uh, you know, the months went by and um, all the, the bills got paid and everything seemed to be going smoothly. Then the sad day came when the mother died and uh, when the family, including the financial expert, came to look at the circumstances of the family, they found that a massive mortgage had been taken out on the family home uh, by this person who was, of course, a fraudster and not a member of a bank. And what that fraudster had done was to play on the the, the woman, the elderly woman, whose memory and whose mental processes were beginning to be undermined by the condition. Now, there are other stories, but I think what I want to e emphasize with both of these is that there's all kinds of dangers. There's physical danger, um, there's danger to life, there's danger to other people, and there's danger to things like the family heritage, the money, um, the the relationships within a family and ultimately trust within a family. So that's really why I feel that autonomy is such an important subject and something that I'm very pleased, Laurie, thank you, to have the opportunity to talk, to talk about now. It, it is very important. And like you mentioned, there are so many dangers out there um, with people because this is an, a vulnerable adult situation. And we really have to do our due diligence, I think, when we're if, if we're going to engage somebody to help us in this process, if it's a business professional or, you know, even a family friend and stuff because you, you need to know where their heart really is at um, and what their motivations are because we hear all too often of, of somebody getting taken down, either physically abused, emotionally abused, or financially just drained. And and so we've got to, I think, really pay attention to that and and look deep into why things are happening and, and how they happen as well. Um, it's It's a difficult thing to do, though, because we want to, we want to trust people, and we also want to, you know, assume that they're being done the right way. And, and by having to double-check on them, then that's extra work for us, too. And as a caregiver, um, you know, we're pretty much stretched for time as it is. Um, what, what do you think we can do to kind of prevent um, the abuse or neglect in there? Have you come across any any certain tips that might be helpful for people to even assess themselves and or others that they might hire or um, call in as volunteers to assist? Yes, there are things. And um, let's go through a little bit of a, a discussion of some of them. One is, and you've already mentioned this, Laurie, is um, having at least one person or maybe a a very tiny group of people who I as a family caregiver can go to to say I'm worried about this that or the other in the person I'm looking after and I'm not sure whether I should be doing something about it what do you think now that has obvious advantages because being alone in these situations um, 
is lonely. Uh, that is to say, you're left wondering if you're imagining things, whether you're overreacting, whether you're underreacting, and that kind of thing. To have somebody who you can confide in, who you can trust, and who you know uh, is going to say really what they think uh, in, a, in a way that reflects their sense of what's right and proper is, is very, very helpful. So, it comes to friends, it comes to maybe members of the extended family. Uh, there's a certainly need for communication within the family, but sometimes people point to, and I think most of us have had this experience, that families don't always agree on things, and things can sometimes get you know, get into a discussion which maybe flows over into an argument, especially when the stress is on. So sometimes it may be useful, as I say, to have somebody outside the family or somebody who knows us and who we trust to be a kind of advisor. Now, the next thing is um, to go and think about or to think about having professionals as advisors. Now, there's cost involved in this, um, but it needn't be out of hand, this cost. And I'm thinking of the family lawyer when it's come to the situation, for example, that it's time for power of attorney, um, then the family lawyer and the family caregiver, and maybe one or two other members of the family as well, can form a kind of little committee. That's too, that's too formal, but you know what I mean, a little group that actually mm -hmm. agrees to discuss things as they come up. Um, that can be helpful and actually very helpful because you get, you know, if there are three people, you get three separate views. If you've got a lawyer among them, you'll get a sense of what the law can do and can't do to protect. So that's very helpful. Then the third thing is a health care professional, namely the family doctor, maybe um, a nurse who's very experienced in this, maybe a psychologist, you know, people of that like that, who have a sense of where the Alzheimer's, for example, is going to be going. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, sadly, as we know, this isn't a curable disease. Uh, I wish would that it were, but it isn't. Um, it progresses, but the rate at which it progresses varies quite a lot. So, where a an experienced healthcare professional can be very helpful is to say, you know, from what we're, we, what you're telling me, I think your mum has reached such and so stage, which means that the kind of things that you're going to have to be looking out for are as follows, and then just to discuss, so that the family caregiver is starting to to ask the question, well, does that mean my mom is going to get confused about this, going to forget that, perhaps become aggressive at the wrong time, that kind of thing. And then it's sort of a case, a case of the family caregiving giver being uh, forewarned uh, of things that are coming so that things don't take the family caregiver completely by surprise when when they if and when they do they do happen so those are what i would call some of the preventive things that, that can actually be done laurie i'm sure you have views on this too what do you think about the question you just asked me the prevention well 
The prevention, I, I think part of it is that, you know, and this is kind of funny because I just had this epiphany the other day. I, I use this memory chip that I tell caregivers to use when they're interacting with someone with Alzheimer's disease. And the, the memory chip is um, focusing on three things instead of the task at hand. Are you safe? Are you happy? Are you pain-free? And I kind of had this epiphany the other day that, wow, you know, as a caregiver, we have to look at not only the patient in that light but ourselves. Are we safe? Are we happy? Are we pain-free? And that means physically, emotionally, mentally, um, you know, how are we doing with giving care? Because if we aren't balanced, if we don't feel whole, if we're feeling that we're in an abusive situation or we're being neglected, you know, our needs are being neglected, I think that's when abuse can really raise its ugly head. And not that anybody intends to go there, but it's out of this frustration and and we're out of balance. We're out of whack, and so we're not thinking straight. And so I think it's very important for us um, as caregivers to say, you know, especially family caregivers, how are we doing with giving care? Are we comfortable with this? Is this something that we want to do? And if it's something that we really don't want to do, and it could be a specific task, it's not like you have to throw away the baby with the wash, you know, it's, you break it you can break it all down and see exactly you know where things are at um and so for example somebody might not be comfortable giving a parent or a spouse a bath that just might not be what they're comfortable doing another person might not feel that they have the expertise to deal with the finances or the legal aspects Another person in the family might be much more skilled and better apt at that, and they're not going to struggle, and it's just going to flow for them. You might have an accountant in the family, you know, that can handle those types of things, and it comes second nature. So I think we have to look at what is a good match for us as a whole, because that will reduce our frustrations in terms of our caring roles, and that in itself will, I think, help um, lessen the abuse and neglect. And again, I don't think it comes out of people going in with that intent. Not that there aren't, you know, there's some people who financially just go after people like tigers. And I mean, that's that's their role. And I think most of the time with with family members, you know, I think we've all had times when we are we get short with people and we might snap, <clears throat> and it has nothing to do really with them. It has to do with us being out of balance and not aligned. So I think that <clears throat> that we excuse me, I think that we really have to not only look at protecting them, but we have to start talking about self-care. And I know in the US that is not something we are good at doing at all. It just doesn't get discussed. Laurie, when you said self-care then, you meant self-care of the family caregivers themselves, do you? Is that what you meant? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I'd like to just amplify. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd like to amplify that um, what you just said because I think it's profoundly important. Here's here's the thing. Family caregiving, everybody knows this who's been in any way involved is exhausting. It can exhaust people financially, psychologically, and physically, and. It comes to the point where some people 
that they're so tired that they really can't do any more, but they feel guilty about it, or they start to feel angry either with themselves or with the people around them or with the person they're caring for. And that is hard, difficult on everybody, and it is the family caregiver that's the cause of this, if you like, but it's not the family caregiver's will or badness that's led to it. It's the pure stress and strain, 24, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in uncertain circumstances. So that's one side, let's say, of the fence, one side of the coin. Now there's another one. And again, this is something you know very well, Laurie. That is, as the brain begins to deteriorate, change, the harm grows for people with all kinds of dementia, including Alzheimer's disease, they may lose, often do lose, the ability to express themselves in ways that we understand. Um, they, some of them may lose the power of speech altogether. Others can still speak, but what they say may not be understandable by us. And I, I can give you an example of this. Um, someone may have a mouth ulcer, you know, and these are, hurt, these are things that hurt. They get in the way of eating, and they require somebody to look inside the mouth and give some treatment because they can be cleared up. Now, if a person with Alzheimer's disease has a mouth ulcer and is not able to communicate in the way that you and I would communicate, saying, I think I've got something the matter with my mouth, uh, what they may do instead is um, cry, they may moan, they may writhe, or they may even get violent in the sense of being aggressive. Now, understanding that... Um, it doesn't come automatically to us. We as family caregivers need to know that um, some of the behavior we are witnessing and are distressed by isn't the perversity of the person we're looking after. It may be their only way of uh, actually expressing something that's wrong that needs our attention. And if I just give you, I'm still using the mouth because I've become very interested in the question of, you know, how we care for the mouths of people with these conditions, that we being the family caregivers. I mean, you, you mentioned, Laurie, and you're absolutely right, uh, how many of us feel comfortable about giving, our, you know, a male family caregiver giving his mother um, a shower or a bath? Difficult difficult thing to do. I don't think any of us like the idea of looking into the inside the mouths of our loved ones and particularly if we don't really understand what the loved one is actually trying to say to us. So that becomes then a question of interpretation of the behavior of the person so that then as the decision maker, as the person with the autonomy, as the person, we're talking about the family caregiver, who really has the right to make a decision, um, it may come to, 
you know, I think that we need to get a dent dentist or a dental hygienist to see my mom because I think she's got a problem with her mouth that's causing her pain that's stopping her eating. And that's a very practical, valuable piece of decision making, but it may require that level of understanding and comprehension of what mom was trying to draw attention to with all this behavioral change that was actually going on. Um, so what I'm emphasizing is two things here. First of all, uh, and I'm repeating myself a bit, family caregivers get exhausted and they 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 get irritated with themselves, they get angry, uh, and they may respond in ways that they would not normally do. They need also, I think, to understand that the people they are looking after may not be communicating clearly enough. And in that sense of saying, look, we be, you and your mom need to understand your what you're saying to each other better and you the family caregiver need a rest because you're overdoing it and there's no grounds for feeling frustrated that was your word Laurie or, or mm -hmm. guilty because you're doing all that you could possibly be expected to do in a very difficult situation that that would be the kind of broad message I'd have now do you agree with that Laurie yeah I, I definitely I definitely do I think it's uh, I think it's very important um, to find that balance and to seek deeper, you know, not just look at the behavior and push it off saying someone's being obstinate. And I think many times that's what happens. Um, we have to realize that, you know, the wires are crossed, especially with someone with Alzheimer's disease or, or any type of, of mental illness or neuro, neuro, ah, neurological um, problems. You know, they're not wired the same as us. And so we have to dig, we have to dig deeper. Um, again, one of the, the things that I, you know, and I repeat myself on this all the time, but we all use the same equations when it comes to reacting, and that is our current attitude plus our past history equal our perceptions and that our perceptions trigger our reactions. And that still occurs, I believe, with every person, no matter where they're coming from and no matter, you know, it, it, it just might not ding, ding, ding in the mind down the trail. We think it should. And so we have to look at what would make sense to this person and why would they react that way. And um, with the teeth, that's a, that's a great example to be able to use where it might be painful, it might be discomfort, it might be scary to them to think, what happened to my tooth? It was there and now it's not, or there's this big bump and they know something has changed, but they don't maybe even can't even say it's a tooth, you know, um, might not be able to express themselves at all, but they know something's not right. And they've got to draw, you know, attention to that. And so it's our jobs as caregivers to dig deeper and figure out what are the signs, what is different with them, um, and utilize, you know, kind of that environmental checklist of what has changed since the last time I saw them. Um, you know, and it could be things from the room is too cold to the light is too bright to something doesn't taste good or smell good. We have to get all the senses involved. Uh, it could be somebody touching them and they're not a huggy, touchy person. You know, all those things add up. And we just take all that stuff for granted 
it's just kind of on an unconscious level um, in a, I hate to even use the word normal, but in a, in a normal um, atmosphere. You know, we just, we kind of go with the flow and we don't even realize the impact that we have on one another or um, what our environment does to us to trigger things as well. That's another fundamental point that I don't think professionals really understand sufficiently about the job of the family caregiver in these kinds of circumstances. Uh, That is to say, uh, interpreting what's happening and making a decision about what the best thing to do requires sometimes every every ounce of... uh, kind of understanding of love of of sympathy to deal with the obstinacy that was a the word they're obstinate um which in the past this person were caring for wasn't and i i'm going to give you just an an instance of where things can go in the other direction and what that the little story will illustrate is that sometimes um, surprising things can have positive and not just negative aspects. I did um, an episode on my show, Laurie, with um, interviewing a man, a male caregiver. He was he's a retired firefighter who um, looks after his wife, who has progressive um, Alzheimer's disease and what I was talking to him about and also the person who organizes the thing that he was talking about which were dancing classes he was talking about the way he and his wife who'd been childhood sweethearts um, would go to these dancing classes and she would enjoy them and on my episode, he was describing their life together as childhood sweethearts. And um, he telephoned me afterwards. He called me afterwards. The show was over. And he said, my wife and I were listening to the episode. And when I, I, that is the firefighter, was talking about our time a childhood sweetheart, he said, my wife snuggled up to me because she remembered. And there was that, a moment of sort of shared happiness that came through all of the other things that cause all the negative reactions, all the struggles, all the obstinacies and all the rest of it. And so the, the message behind that I, I think lies behind a lot of this is that um, people with this disease don't lose everything all at once it does deteriorate it does change as you say the wires do get crossed Um, but at the same time not all of the wires are crossed all of the time and therefore there are moments where we can do things, say things, listen to things, be things, which invoke the positive memories of the past and not just continue with the stresses and strains of the present. So 
why I'm rambling about this, because I, I am rambling a bit about it, because it made a profound impression on me when I when I heard heard this man say this, uh, is this that we are dealing with as family caregivers a situation in which our interaction with the person we love in the range of emotions, moods, behaviours that that person goes through are the most fundamental relations of all because it's us, it's me, it's you who have understood, participated in and learned from the relationship with this loved one and therefore we're the ones who have some sense of what is said and done and the message it might pass to our loved one, positively and negatively. And with due respect to all of my professional colleagues, um, you know, they will get a sense of this, and by questioning, they will understand it, and they understand it as a principle, but they can't know the details that the family caregiver um, is party to, and nor can they understand, in that sense, why the autonomy, the decision-making of the family caregiver must be, as far as possible, respected, because they're the ones who are most likely to interpret the situation, the reaction, and why is that, if everything is, is as good as it can be, um, are in the best interests of the person with the condition. Hello, Laurie. Oh, sorry about that. I was on mute somehow there. <laughs> I was talking <laughs> to myself. <laughs> Anyways, um, when you were talking, I, I totally agree. And I, I jumped on my blog because when you were telling the story of the, the firefighter, it um, just resonated with me this great little film called Ten Glorious Seconds, which you can get on the Internet. And yes. it's that www and then 10 spelled out t-e-n and then gloriousseconds.com and it is just so emotional because it shows the frustration of the caregiver so badly wanting to connect and doing everything in their power to connect with this person before them and it happens to be um, an elderly couple that you know has been married forever and you can see her frustrations you can see how tired she is and there's this moment of just 10 seconds where he's there with her and i i can almost feel myself cheering up now picturing <laughs> it because she doesn't want and they, they they have this embrace and she doesn't want to let him go and she knows he's going to go again but she also knows he will be back and so we can't give up. We have to really focus on those nanoseconds that exist and grab a hold of them and look for them because if we don't look for them, we won't find them. We have to go in with the intention that there is joy and there is a level of connection. And again, you know, I use my mom all the time because she has taught me so many lessons um, you know, a 30-year journey, three years now she's been in her end stages, but there are moments she still connects with me, even though she rarely talks, she's not mobile, she can't feed herself, she can't do anything for herself. 
but there are moments she will connect with myself or maybe a staff member or even another resident in the nursing home. And it is so powerful when that happens. You know, we have to look beyond the shell. We have to get beyond our judgment of what makes a person a person and accept everybody in every situation for where they're at. And um, it's it's a beautiful thing when we can do that, and I, I think that's when we give care, we have to realize that we always, always receive care if we're open to receiving it. Yeah. But it, it, it's a two-way street, and so many people get so angry and so blocked of why me and you know, this isn't the life that I wanted. Well, you know what? There are very few people in this world that have a life that they wanted. I mean, yeah. we all we we all have different things that come before us. And I I truly I truly believe that there is a lesson in each one of those obstacles that will make us a better person in the long run if we're strong enough to deal with it. And not everybody is. And and that's something too that we have to we have to be able to accept and not judge that everybody's doing the best they can in the situation that they have before them. Um, so you know, for me, you know, one of my one of my goals is to help people find the joy and look for the joy and to shift this mindset of caregiving being a crisis mode to one of being a natural state, one that we just live with day in and day out. If we're healthy or if we're not healthy, we are still giving care. And I I really think we have to smash this myth of caregiving is this horrendous thing that we do, that we're called to do, that we're forced to do, um, that society expects us to do. And, And I think the biggest myth is that it is expected that we do this journey alone. And I I don't think any of us should do it alone. It's something that we need to work together to find balance um, so that it is a true flow of positive energy between us, um, no matter who it is you're working with. I think we have to become much more attuned to our friends and our family and our coworkers and what they are doing in their lives um, because so many of our cultures hide. You know, they're embarrassed to talk about um, family issues. And that just, that just, to me, makes the burden even worse because now you don't have an outlet. You can't speak honestly. You can't ask for support. And I know in the U.S., I don't know how it is in Canada, but, you know, we're not really good about asking for help. You know, I mean, we've got, I should say, we have a couple of different realms. We have our our welfare state, which is way out of whack, and people, you know, just feel that that's owed to them. And then we have people that don't feel that they should ask for any help. And both are out of whack in different angles, Um, you know, one where it's expected to be fixed. And I don't think we can expect the government to fix this. And I I feel like a lot of people are waiting for our government to fix this. You know, here in the U.S., my opinion, again, I don't mean to get political, but we're a mess. We're, We're just a disaster in terms of 
where we are at and there aren't the funds. And again, I think it's a lesson. I don't think it's something that we need to be scared about. I think it's just something that everybody has to step up to the plate and say, we got to fix this together because a small group cannot fix a societal issue. This is a, a whole care culture that needs to be shifted. And one party or one group can't do it alone. We've got to get everybody speaking that same same language and have a common goal in order for us to really be able to correct it. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I would love to hear them. First of all, I, I agree with you very strongly in what those those things that you've been saying, particularly this question of um people who are in this situation um needing the encouragement the help the involvement the discussion the connection with other people um Laurie, the thing that one of the things that i knew nothing of and have learned from my talk show um is this that family caregiving is for many a long and very hard road. It's a very challenging road. It gets rough, very rough, many times. Uh, And people who've traveled a fair distance down that road, it's as though they suddenly stop, look over their shoulders, and see somebody else, like they were, kind of starting out on their travel down that particular road. And the people who've been there and done that look back, reach out a hand and give it, offer it at least, to the people who are just starting out. And I know you've had this experience and I know, in fact, I'll go a stage further. Laurie, I would put it to you that you're an example of that kind of person. I think it's very widespread. Um, I've heard more than I ever knew about of the kind of efforts that people put in to help others. And so what that brings me back to is, first of all, your point about the same language and the same voices. That is, people talking to each other because, you know, when it first is announced one way or another by the physician or who else that mom is probably getting... Alzheimer's disease, probably developing it, that for many families is a is a blow. It's a it, it's a bolt, bad bolt from the blue. It's it hits them. They do not know really what they're dealing with. They 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 find out to have somebody to talk to, not just a physician, not just a nurse, not just a psychologist, not just a social worker, but somebody who's actually been there and done that, like you to say, these are the kind of things I ran into, this is what's going to happen, and you're not alone. Others have been through this, and they will share their experiences with you. That seems to be very beneficial, because that sense of being alone um, is actually very, very alarming for for anybody, you know, to be facing something which you've had no training for, not your fault, There's no question that you had any responsibilities to get training for this. You didn't. Um, It isn't something that you've done and set out to do. It isn't a judgment on you because you had a misspent life. This is something, this is nature. 
whatever you believe in this is nature um, taking over and something is going wrong in the case of Alzheimer's of dementia the brain of a person who matters to you very much um, that sense then that uh, you're not alone this has happened to other people then can develop into what you were also talking about Laurie and that is that that sense of if I do a good job here I am performing an act of love for the person I care for may not seem like it at the time looking inside somebody's mouth or giving them a you know bathing them or something may not seem that way but it really is um, and this comes back to the autonomy making a decision about what's best for them is part of that love it's part of that and I'm going to use a term here job satisfaction that is the sense that yeah we decided to do this and not to do that today for dad that was the right decision that's a good thing and it maybe can be even discussed in an appropriate way with the person because as you say you know there are moments of recovery and things like that but it's that sense of um, family caregiving is a, is almost a calling it's almost something that part of your evolution as a person uh, in a small community of a family in a small community of neighbors in a small community that may be spread out all over the world but thanks to technology of the kind that we're using can actually become quite a small community that's where it all starts to come together in the sense of yes uh, and you know when when mom dies when dad dies the sense that I did my best and it was right what I did that's that's I, I'm not going to say it's a reward but it's a sense that I was asked I responded and what I did I think was good and um, I think human beings need that and I think human beings are capable of that I think many of us go astray from time to time politically socially financially in other ways but I think that there are a lot of people a lot of people, Laurie, who actually in their own ways, we may not fully understand them, are following through on that sort of guidance. And sometimes it's it's their faith, sometimes it's their sense of culture, sometimes it's their sense of, okay, I was looked after as a child by my mom, by my parents, um, my turn to do something for them and yes there are moments where I feel that I am fulfilling my obligations. Now I'm sorry if that sounded a bit like a lecture or even a sermon but I think these what I'll call emotional matters of a positive kind for family caregivers are profoundly important because they help offset that sense of why why me the kind of things you were talking about what did I do to deserve this uh, there doesn't seem to be any escape I didn't intend to live a life lead a life like this those are the sorts of negative things which actually prevent the family caregiver from gaining satisfaction from very real 
work that can be, at times, not just frustrating, but really satisfying. Laurie, do you agree with any of that? Um, yeah, I do. In fact, it was interesting because Mary Beth uh, had noted on the line that you know one of the things that she finds in terms of being really supportive to her is the Internet because she can get real-time response. And when we're talking about trying to figure out you know, how do we how do we shift this culture and how do we communicate? I just think it's so important that we reach out and we talk. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, as family caregivers, how do we help physicians switch from this resource lab and tactical approach to understanding that we are dealing with a living and breathing laboratory out here in the real world? <laughs> And, you know, we, we don't put things in Petri dishes and we don't have double-blind studies. <laughs> We're dealing with the here and the now. And I, to me, I, I think that's one of the things that family caregivers struggle with. I, I was at a conference the other day. It was a great conference, and, and I don't want to take anything away from it, but they asked me to kind of critique it. And so I went through every speaker and, you know, a couple of just brilliant, brilliant doctors and researchers were just putting everybody to sleep because this was a caregiver conference. And people were like, I don't want to see 42 slides of the brain. I get something's wrong. I don't need to know the depth of it. I need to know how do I survive this disease? How do I make life better for us in our family, with my friends? You know, how do we do that? You know, do your research and keep it going. They all appreciate that. But it's like, don't put me to sleep with this analytical stuff. Speak my language. And so how do we how do we awaken our physicians to I hate to say have a heart, but really <laughs> it. And there's some brilliant ones. I've met some absolutely fabulous doctors out there that they connect on a personal level. They they get the emotional piece of this disease and this emotional piece is this drives it. This is the driver's seat. And for some reason, you know, um, we're driven by this fear of um, genetics. And it's like we have to get beyond that, in my opinion. And, and we have to get back to the base of the relationship. So any suggestions, since you are a physician, um, you know, how do we, how do we help educate, um, our, you know, our, our important professionals that really are in charge of so many things first first answer is i know exactly what you're talking about and maybe i was a bit that way myself so i know painfully what you're talking about now first thing um physicians are not immune to the kind of conditions we're talking about themselves and nor other families. And there is in healthcare something that's called double duty caring. And what that's really referring to is doctors and nurses whose partner, whose spouse has one of these conditions. And so during the day, or if they're on, they're on the night shift during the night, they're caring for people they call patients. 
the other times, the other part of the 24 hours, they're looking after their spouse just as other family caregivers do. And uh, I've spoken to them, enough of them, I've read about, read their writings to know that they will understand because of their first-hand experience of exactly the things you're talking about. So if you ever got the opportunity for conferences or maybe this show to find a physician who, or a nurse who's been a family caregiver or is one and done this double duty stuff, get them talking because that will be important for other physicians as well as other family caregivers. So that's point number one. Point number two is, uh, this is a little, little bit of subversion if you'll forgive me. Um, I think one of the ways to the physicians, <laughs> I'll get into trouble for this, stony heart, is to say to them, oh, I'm the family caregiver, and I can be your eyes and ears to help you assess what's happening to mom or dad. And it's not just parents we're talking about. Sometimes it's children, we're talking about, you know, the family caregivers are looking after their children. Sometimes the family caregivers are grandparents looking after their grandchildren because the parents aren't able to. Um, to be able to say to the physician, look, what are the things you would like me to look out for so I can report back to you? They like That's the kind of language they like. Uh, I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but I don't mean this in a negative way. I mean in the sense of this is strategy with doctors. And then say, now, I noticed the other day that my mom was, or my dad was, whatever it was, um, is this an emergency? Is this something I should call you about? When would you like to know about it? And sometimes this is where electronic health records can be useful because uh, there's a way in which perhaps the doctor might be interested in being informed of things. Although what we're starting to realize is that sending doctors emails isn't actually all that useful because they get too many and like the rest of us they don't necessarily read everything we they get but there are ways in which we can communicate but i i do think it's a very good idea to say look i i'm the family caregiver uh and i want to do the best uh but the best will involve conveying information to you doctor um that will help you um, make this make medical decisions about what's best for my, for, you know, for the person I'm looking after. So that's number two, and number three is actually to um, find doctors of who are actually open to this kind of discussion. And I think the only there's only one way of doing it, and that is to actually ask them because. I don't, I don't think it necessarily goes with age. I don't think it goes with the type of doctors they are. I think it's to do with um, their own personal experiences. Um, I've, my show, I used to, I don't do it so much now, but I used to ask um, people to tell me, my, my guests to tell me, what makes the sun shine for them? You know, we've been talking about, as you and I have, Laurie, um, things that are uncomfortable, are unpleasant, uh, are worrying um, but you and I have also spoken about moments that where the sun shone and 
sometimes there are doctors who will respond to that and say, you know, it's interesting you asked me that, but, and then they'll go into uh, an anecdote which illustrates that uh, the kind of things that happen, and I'm going to call it offline, if you know what I mean by that. That is the sense of it's not part of the formal con consult, but it is part of the interaction with the person or the family. Um, they will talk about that, and then you know you've got some common ground. If they don't have, and I'm, again, I'm being unkind, but if they don't have the slightest idea of what you're talking about, or even what the sun is, let alone why it should shine, then maybe the answer is, if you can, is to go and do a little bit more research and find a physician who is able to respond to that kind of question and come back to you with suggestions about how you and he or she can interact with each other to the benefit of your mum, pop, your child, your relative, or the rest of it. Now, as far as I know, I'll, I'll finish. Laurie, you, you, you ask such interesting questions that you get me going on lectures, and this has just been one of them. But let me round off by saying this. The research worker, the researcher, um, is a different breed. That is to say, they look at numbers, they count things, they stare down microscopes, uh, they read the literature, which is unintelligible to everybody else, and they recognize and are recognized as being successful when they're, they're showing 40 slides of the brain on a platform. Um, <laughs> it's a perfect, it's good. I mean, they add to knowledge, and this, these are people doing their best and there are men and women among them who are very very bright and doing very very good work but they may not be the right people for the kind of things that family caregivers are concerned about simply because not everybody uh, is able to respond in quite the way we want them to but some of them are and some of them are very good at it um, I, I'll, I'll just round off by saying that question which I've already mentioned, what makes the sunshine for you? Maybe not, not to be asked directly of a doctor, but a sense of, doctor, in a situation like this, what are the things that you would lead you to, to think, you know, this person, this family caregiver is doing a good job, or I and this person who's doing the family caregiver job have actually made a good team and done something very useful or useful for the patient that we both can feel satisfied with. End of lecture. Okay. hope that's a bit helpful. Okay. Well, it looks like we've got a caller on the line. So before I before I sound off, I'm going to pull in um, this person. And we've got somebody on a 214 number. And who do I have with me here? Hi, Laurie. Hello. This is Mary Beth. Hi, Mary Beth. Hello, Laurie. This is Mary Beth. I'm very well, thank you. Um, well, a thank couple you for of things. In. Yeah, we have a delay, so um, I'll, I'll try to state. I'll try to speak in a long paragraph, so we're not cutting each other off. Um, two points I want to make. First, on the current topic, uh, what I did was I decided I would put together a caregiving team for my husband, and I approached people and said, I'm building a team. Do you want to be on the team? And what I did is near my small community, I chose a nurse practitioner who had a great reputation, 
and asked her if she would be on our team. And I wanted somebody who would oversee my husband's overall wellness, his whole person, not his illness. And she said she had experience with Alzheimer's from uh, a relative, but she didn't treat it. And I told her I didn't expect her to have that expertise. I needed her to be responsible or to have oversight of his wellness. I also chose a pharmacist in my small town in case I needed drugs down the road. I wanted to make sure I had a single point of of contact who was looking at the total uh, chemistry. And probably the greatest asset on my team was a psychologist that was referred to me. Not a psychiatrist. A a psychologist um, cannot prescribe drugs. But I had a psychologist that was referred to me who has a practice specifically dealing with uh, dementia. And he doesn't work out of his office. He works in a group of uh, nursing facilities and homes. But he does see people in his office only once a month. And he's turned out to be an extraordinary resource because not only is he talking to my husband and assessing his current state, but he's also coaching me. Um, So I get two for the price of one. And he will say, have you tried this? Have you had this discussion? Um, You can do this to manage anxiety. So he's been just a huge asset. And you'll notice I don't have a neurologist on my team because we had made the decision not to use the Alzheimer's drugs, and without the drugs, I didn't really have a need to go back and see him again. Wonderful. Well, that makes perfect sense, though. It makes absolutely perfect sense. So how do you, do you tap into them individually, or do you kind of pull together a care conference? How do you, how do you work with your team? Uh, well, my nurse practitioner said that she wanted to do a general physical uh, every six months because she understands that if he has health issues or symptoms, he may not know how to tell us. And I thought that was a very good strategy. Um, with my uh, the psychologist, we're, we're seeing him uh, quarterly, and which right now is probably more than we need because we don't have a lot of changes, but it does give us that opportunity for him to assess our current state so he stays along with us as we progress through this. Um, And since we're really not doing much right now with regards to any drugs, my uh, uh, pharmacist is just a wonderful face in the community who asks me how I'm doing and how things are going. (laughs) Well, that's wonderful, though. And I, I like the idea of even though things are status quo, still checking in. Because even if it's status quo for the patient, sometimes it's not for us, the caregiver. Um, Other things can be coming up, or you might be starting to see a little here, a little there, nothing that needs a major change. But it's a a time to be able to tap resources. So I think that that is such a smart, smart thing to do. Um, I love that idea. Gordon, what do you think about Mary Beth's idea? I think it's tremendous. I congratulate you on this I'm going to call it a sort of close teamwork. Um, you pick your own, pick the members who suit your situation, um, draw on their services as required, <clears throat> and, and also draw on them in a way that reflects your own personal view of how Yeah. Now, could I just ask Mary Beth a question? Please. Sure. Mary okay. Beth, you okay Mary with Beth. that? Sure. Yeah, Mary Beth, 
we were talking about autonomy, you know, the decision making. Um, do you find yourself as being the decision maker in these sort of in any of the sort of situations? And if you do, what what do you think? I don't know really how many how many of my little lectures on this episode you've actually heard, but do you agree with the point that the family caregiver does have uh, an important responsibility sometimes as the decision maker when the the person with the condition isn't able to make them the decisions themselves. Mary Beth, what do you think about that? Uh, there's two points there. I'm taking care of my husband, and that's a different relationship than if you're taking care of your parents. Um, I've had health situations where I did work with my parents, and let me go back to my husband. Because we've been married 27 years today, um, there's a certain amount of decision-making you have done for each other over the life of the marriage. So taking over the sole responsibility for those decisions was gradual but also seems very natural. But when you're taking care of a parent, you want to respect their ability you don't you, you have to sort of decide at what point do I have to start making these decisions? At what point are the decisions you're making not prudent? And I think there's a line that there's more of a, a hard line that you cross there. And I think that's very challenging. Very important. Uh, just one quick comment back to you. I think you're absolutely right about that distinction between husband on the one hand and parents on the other. And that the one, the former, as you've just said, is a sort of progressive transition, isn't it, from joint to you alone, whereas the parent is much more difficult because, for many of us anyway, we've never ever been in a position where we did have to make judgments or uh, make decisions for our parents. So I salute you for that. I think it's. I think that was a, uh, an excellent analysis. If I maybe my uh, ex-academic uh, uh, at its worst, I'm not, uh, I really do think that's good. And I'm, I'm going to, uh, if I may, uh, use that example if I'm ever asked this question again. And then I, I had one other point, and then I'll clear the airs here. Um, you were talking earlier about people going through the why is this happening to me? Why do I have all this responsibility? I would say that that's a normal part of moving from your life into the caregiver role. I don't think you should um, uh, try to tampen that down. I think you should experience and go through it, and then you'll find your way from there. I, re I will always remember that early in this process with my husband, I remember thinking, if the purpose of my life is to take care of this man, I am going to be so disappointed. <laughs> because my life has to be more than being the caregiver for this individual. And that and now that I'm so much further down the road, I would say um I wouldn't I'm I'm glad that I've had this opportunity if I could go back again and make a decision whether or not I would be his caregiver, I would be because the experience has been so important to me and and so important to who I've become. But I had to go through that, this is crap phase, and work through it to and get to the point where now I think it's the, the higher calling to ask to be dedicated and committed to the care of another human being 
um, I think is um, is a call to be answered. I, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. And I, I think that it is a um, it's part of the process. I mean, this there's a grieving process that goes through anytime we go through change. I don't care if it's a health situation or whatever. Um, when we feel like we're losing something, we have to be able to feel that pain to move through it. And the question that I always ask myself now, and it's you know taken me 50 years to get there, but is what's the lesson in this? And there's always a lesson, and it always makes sense to me. Once I kind of push my ego aside and allow myself to feel whatever it is I'm feeling at the moment, that I can I can see forward with what it is. I, I also have to just give Mary Beth kudos because she has on Facebook a group called Memory Keepers, which is a support group for um, basically spouses. And it's it's an incredible resource. It's a small group, um, but if you are a spouse out there dealing with a loved one that has dementia, I would encourage you, if you're a member of Facebook, um, to go ahead and just put it in the search bar, Memory Keepers. And if you're not, but you have access to a computer, I encourage you to join because you get... The bonds that are made in groups like Mary Beth, Memory Keepers, and groups like Rick Phelps, who has um, Alzheimer's disease, which is called Memory People, is incredible. The resources available to you worldwide will astonish you because I I know they have me. The connections are, are unbelievable. So, you know, don't limit yourself to a box because there are so many people out there that want to be able to help you that are experiencing the same or similar things to you. Um, Gordon, did you have any um, any comments or Mary Beth? No, I think no, I'm done. Act- you're, I think you're done. I think we lost Gordon there. It looks like his his call dropped altogether. So. <laughs> We'll see if, if he gets back with us. I know he was having a, a time with his phone system there. So, well, Mary Beth, I so appreciate you um, calling in. Um, if you, Do you still have a minute? Because I want to run something by you that I've kind of been playing with. Do you have a second to stay with us on the show? Sure. I'm on my cell phone, so as long as I've got battery, I'm good to go. Okay. Um, one of the things that, that I'm contemplating, and I'd like to get feedback from people, is to almost start, and I'm not exactly sure how this would go or if I would initiate it or if it would be someone else who would who would take the ball and run because I've got many things in the air myself right now. But one of the things that I get so frustrated with is the isolation that people feel when they get diagnosed this disease, not just the, the person diagnosed but the family at large. And, I, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night one night thinking, we should have a, a party um, and have it kind of be a planned party or celebration type piece. It's almost like a Tupperware party in terms of structure where you can email friends and family and invite them to come over and then be able to do, you know, have kind of panned information that is that can be utilized to explain what is going on, what is this disease, 
and then really get into we want to build a team of our friends and support and this is the type of type of help we're probably going to need over time and who would be interested in partaking in that and then really being able to give people some type of idea of specifics of what is needed. And it might be, you know, we might need a ride to the store, we might need help with groceries or cutting grass, or it might just be it would be nice if you came, uh, you know, you picked up the phone and you called and had a conversation and didn't focus on the disease but focused on the friendship. Um, or, you know, still went out like you used to be able to go out, especially in the early stages. What are your thoughts on something like that? Do you think something like that could work or would work, or, or am I just a crazy lady? Um, I think it depends on the individual. I know for my husband, he never accepted that diagnosis, and out of respect for him and his privacy, we I didn't tell people. Because yep. well, for start for starters, when you're first diagnosed, it, you always have a a probable you know it's a probable Alzheimer's disease, and yep. there's a pro, there's a probability that it won't be that. And so, mm-hmm. um, and then of course, when my husband was diagnosed, two years where there was very little change, and during that two year time, I could think, well, maybe this isn't Alzheimer's. So, um, you know, it has to. I think it's a good idea in terms of rallying your resources, making helping people to understand. Um, but I also think that at that time or at the time of realization, you're dealing with so much that you don't even know what to ask for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now that I'm, you know, four or five years down the road, I can say um, in retrospect, this is what I needed. You know, I do need people to, who, to call or people to stop by for a cup of coffee. Or, um, But I couldn't tell you that when I was at the beginning of this. Mm-hmm. Does that make, and does very that make sense? Very good point. Yeah, and I do think that it has to be respectful. It, wouldn't be, it definitely wouldn't be a mandate. And maybe it would be a two-piece part of, in terms of helping people get educated. Dr. Richard Taylor has done a new training um, video that is, and I hate to even call it training, it's an educational video about the myths and stigmas attached to the disease. And it is probably one of the best videos I've ever seen. I think it's like $39. And if you Google Dr. Richard Taylor, you'll be able to find it. But it's absolutely fabulous because it talks about the what if and it talks about what it feels like to be diagnosed. And the only thing that I think you'll have... um, maybe some problem in terms of selling it is that Richard is still very articulate even though it's been I think seven years that he was diagnosed with dementia probably of the Alzheimer's type. Yet he has, you know, problems like like anybody else with the disease in terms of tracking time or, you know, being able to use mechanics or scheduling and, you know, I mean the list goes on and on and on, but he's still I think because of his past, um, being a psychologist and being comfortable speaking, he just does, I mean, the video is just magnificent, in my opinion. Um, And he really touches the heart and the core of of what it's like, not only for the person with dementia, but for family members as well. And, you know, I would love to see that get into everybody's hands because I think it would reduce a lot of that fear and angst of the unknown 
in saying that, you know, there is life with this disease. And so many I would like to think, mm-hmm. I would like to see anything being distributed to people rather than the book thirty six hours. Mm-hmm. The thirty six hour day. That that's the book that all doctors say upon your diagnosis. You might want to read this book, and some doctors actually hand it out. And, of course, it's a very sick book of all of the terrible things that could happen. And I I just think it's the wrong way to be introduced to what's before you. I I totally agree. The conference I was at the other day, um, they mentioned that book. And I'm like, out of all the books, and and not not to, you know, discount it but it's it's not the first introduction it doesn't give people hope it just says you know okay you got 24 hours but you got to squish 36 into this <laughs> you know? and, and it tells you all you the know, things that that might happen and and many of those things will never happen since since everyone it, progresses in their own way exactly exactly so definitely, I think there's just so much on the cusp of what we can do. I, I do believe that, um, you know, they're really, really trying to make a difference here and get things corrected um, and get more support for both patients and families um, in the crux of things. But I also think that the general population at large has to speak out more with this um, because right now, again, the, the major funders out there, you know, they're pushing for research. And, you know, research is great, but what do people do today? And those numbers are going to continue to grow. So I I think that there's got to be a balance with everything. um, Well, and I also think that most of the research is pharmaceutical-driven, and I think that has its own conflicts of interest. Yes, yep. I definitely agree. Definitely agree. Well, I thank you so much for being with us. And I apparently, um, Dr. Gordon Atherley cannot um, get back to us. He must be having some phone problems there. So, but we, uh, you know, we've been on the line about an hour and a half now. So I suppose we can go ahead and close the show. Any final comments that you would like to say, Mary Beth, while you're still here? Thanks for taking my call, and I appreciate your program. Oh, well, thank you so much for everything you're doing. You're doing a a great job, and we always appreciate your input. So have a great day. Again, I want to thank uh, Dr. Gordon Atherley for being with us today. Um, He is just uh, an exceptional man. If you have a chance to go listen to his radio show again, it's the Family Caregivers Unite on Voice of America Network um, variety channel. I think you will get uh, lots of good information. Um, like my show, programs are archived, and so you can always go back and listen to uh, to various shows. You can reach Gordon by um, the following email, and it's dr. period grayhead, and that's g r e y head at grayhead. And then it's um, slash associates.com, or you can always just uh, Google him, uh, Dr. Gordon Atherley, and that is A-T-H-E-R-L-E-Y, and his show will pop up, and you'll be able to, to get to him there. We do have our next show scheduled here for November 4th. I can't believe Halloween is almost around the corner, and November is kicking in gear. 
And we will air at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 Central and 1 Pacific. And on that show, we're going to have Carolyn um, Brent and Amina Fuller. Um, and they, Carolyn has written a book called Why Wait, and it's a baby boomer's guide to basically dealing with a, a parent um, with an illness. And she has just an absolutely incredible uh, family dynamic story. Um, after that show, we are going to have Susan Parrish on on November 7th. And Susan um, has Alzheimer's, and the title of her show is called Identity Shift, From Nurse to Alzheimer's to Susan. And then on November 11th, I'm going to have Michelle Mason back. Michelle was part of the Soul Purpose program we had on earlier this month. And we've decided to um, put on a show that we really want to be interactive with people. And it's called Ignite Your Care Culture. And we want to just help people brainstorm their ideas um, to shift this culture care and how do they put it into place. And then on the 18th, I'm going to have Dr. William Fry. uh, And he is from Minnesota. And he's going to talk about research and the nasal insulin that is out there. He is the original one who patented that. And then on December 2nd, I'm going to have Rock um, Liao from uh, Harvard. He's one of the neurologist uh, researchers there. And we're going to talk about um, some of the things that they're doing. So I think it'll be quite, quite interesting, a lot of fun. So please remember, if you're memory impaired and interested in sharing your story with the world, I'd love to hear from you. Or maybe you're a caregiver or a business professional that is just doing something a little bit different than everybody else. We'd love to help share what it is you're doing and spread the word of what it's really like to live and breathe this disease called Alzheimer's disease. I hope you decide to join us again in the future. And I look forward to our conversations as we learn and laugh and maneuver this roller coaster called dementia together. As always, I want to remind you to focus on the three simple things your memory chip teaches us. Are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain-free? And with my epiphany now, turn that on yourself as a caregiver and consider those three things for yourself as well. Thank you for listening, and have a blessed day as you think ahead to go ahead. Bye now. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors, from fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.